Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is childhood obesity researcher Richard Whitberg talking to Marlene Schwartz, deputy director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, about children's cardiovascular risk, fitness, and academic achievement. So, Dr. Whitberg, um, I've heard that you've been doing some very innovative research down in West Virginia to try to look at the relationship between children's health variables and academic performance. Can you tell us some about that? Well, it all comes from a, a data set that um, the Wood County School System, uh, which includes the city of Parkersburg, that they've been able to start putting together for this project. Um, through a health screening that they're doing in Wood County, they've uh, got a data set that at least starts with um, BMI, so they have a height and weight uh, measurement. They've also got some other health measurements in blood pressure and uh, the acanthos nigricans marker, which is a pre-diabetic marker. Uh, also in the data set, we have gender, and we have this, uh, at least a measure of the socioeconomic status of the children by whether they have a free or reduced lunch or whether they have a paid lunch. We have uh, their, their fitness through fitness gram results, which take place later on in the same year, and we have academic achievement in four different subjects, uh, language arts, math, science, and social studies. That's also take, that also takes place later on in the year. So we have, they've been able to assemble this all into one database, and it's a, a wonderful database to start with that you can make um, a lot of relationships with. And it, this is on fifth grade children, and uh, there's about just under a thousand children that are part of this database. Well, it's really unique to have the opportunity to have both the health measurements and the academic performance measurements on the same children within a school system. So what sorts of relationships have you been able to look at with that? Well, um, you know, the, the, there's so much focus on BMI right now, and you continually hear about uh, the epidemic of obesity throughout the U.S. and uh, West Virginia is, is one of the most terrible. I mean, we're number two in adult obesity. I think we're also number two in childhood obesity. Um, so we're able to, to look at, uh, at BMI and see whether some of the things that we've looked at, uh, like other researchers have looked at, is how, how does um, uh, BMI vary with um, socioeconomic status. And I, at one time, it was thought that the poorer children were fatter than the, the, the more fluent children. But we, I think more and more research is showing that that is not the case anymore, that uh, whether you're affluent or whether you're poor or whether you're anywhere in between, that, that playing field has been leveled, and we find that in West Virginia also. Um, we found no difference between uh, the genders in BMI. Uh, both genders are as in bad shape as, as the other. Um, however, we do find that um, for uh, academic achievement that um, the children that are in the, uh, at, not the, the, in the overweight category, which is the 95th and above percentile, that those children did perform significantly worse than the children that were in the normal range or the at-risk range, which is the 85th to 95th percentile. Um, one thing that, that people have not talked about, which we found also, is that in the underweight category, 
those children performed even worse than the children that were in the overweight category. Is your sense that the children in the underweight category are underweight because they're actually not getting enough to eat? That's possible. Um, It could be also that uh, it could be poor nutrition um, where they just aren't eating enough of the right thing. you know, more and more society seems to be forcing uh, children to this ideal body image, which is often model-shaped, rail-thin, and and undernourished. And um, I think we're going to have to start being careful about that as a society because what we're seeing is that that may not be uh, of benefit to the the person, that at least academically it's sure putting them at risk, and I suspect it puts them at risk for other um, conditions too. So it sounds like you were able to show with this data set that there's a relationship between body mass index and academic achievement, and that was after controlling for socioeconomic status. Yes, and and gender, both. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it's kind of like, um, well, I had a, a statistics professor once say that you could correlate the number of pop cans on the side of the road with violence. And of course, that's not from people drinking more pop making them violent. It's because violence increases during hot weather. So they are both correlated with hot weather. Um, BMI, uh, when we started getting into this data set further, um, and we started looking at everything in a multivariate uh, model, um, what's interesting is that obesity falls out. BMI falls out of that model. And the things that become important our um, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, and interestingly, fitness. So you found that the assessments directly of fitness, so these were things like how quickly the child could run a mile or how many sit-ups they could do, that those independently predicted achievement beyond the BMI effect. That's correct. It seems like the fitness is the better predictor of academic achievement than BMI. Well, that seems like really encouraging news in that fitness is something that schools could really work on trying to improve, that it seems that with more time in PE or um, more programming to really help children increase their aerobic capacity, that they could actually get better. Um, Do you think that that's true? Oh, yes. And and I also think that there's less sensitivity around a fitness issue than there is around a BMI issue. When you start talking about BMI, you're talking about things that have a lot of implications on, on on feelings of self-worth and self-image, and it's a very touchy issue to be talking about with parents. And I don't see those same kind of barriers with fitness. I so, mean, everybody everybody buys into the fact that um, you know increasing fitness is probably a good thing. I think that that's a really important point because I know nationally there are some states like Arkansas where they've had programs where they send home reports to parents with their child's body mass index. And there's been a lot of, you know, discussion in the media about whether or not that's a positive thing, whether it hurts the child's self-esteem, whether it upsets the parents. And it seems like moving away from body mass index and toward something like fitness might be helpful because it then focuses not just on what the child looks like, but what the child can do. And then it seems like it has more direct implications for what the family can then do to try to improve those scores. Yes. Um, I've, I've 
said before that it's not the shape of your body, but the shape your body is in. I think that's a great way to summarize it. Um, can you just tell a little bit about how you were able to even get this database put together? I know from my own experience and also from talking to other researchers across the country that it's pretty difficult to get into a school system and have access to both the physical fitness data, the health data, and the academic achievement data all together. How did you all manage that? This, um, to have gotten it to this point, um, it has been a real partnership between the Wood County Schools, um, the West Virginia University, and uh, my health department. I say that, um, but because I think all of us have been important, and I don't, and I think without any one of us, we probably would not have gotten this far. But the groundwork really was laid with the school system. This, um, we had a, a superintendent that was able to get some funding to do uh, a, a, this in-depth screening process because he was sure that it would um, help children's health. Um, and this was back around the year 2000. And to get from that point to the point where we have a database that's available to researchers to look into um, is, is a, a big step. One of the reasons that's happened is because the coordinator of uh, that project for the Wood County Schools, uh, Karen Northrup, um, is, of course, one of my colleagues in the work that we've been doing. Uh, she's been pretty much a tireless advocate of this and has, and I think that points up the need to have uh, some sort of champion within the school system in order to get anywhere. You have to have somebody that is willing to continually continually go to bat and have this be their passion. Um, she's a person that just will not take no for an answer. Um, and she's very diplomatic about it. Because if, if, there are so many ways to have barriers in this. With the No Child Left Behind uh, legislation, um, having any sort of child identifiers or anything that might be able to relate back to a particular school, um, there, there's, there's lots of places where you can run into uh, people who say, no, you, you can't have this data. And you have to make sure that, that there are no child identifiers, there is no way to identify a particular school, um, and that, that children are looked at as a group mm -hmm. um, in order to get to where we've gotten. Now, it, it's possible, I think now that we've gotten this far, that, that um, maybe we get a little further, that we could start looking at school differences, providing that we would not say which school was the best and which school was the worst. Um, those will always be touchy issues, but it's something that has to be done. These kind of relationships just don't get built overnight. There has to be that that trust that gets built up that that nobody in public health is going to embarrass the school system. Um, nobody uh, is going to say something that's going to get the school superintendent in trouble. Nobody's going to do anything that gets the uh, education system in, in trouble, and that trust has to get built. So. It's been five or six years worth of building trust. That makes so much sense to me, um, just in my own experience doing research in Connecticut and, and talking to other researchers, that you really do have to take the time to build those relationships because the school 
you know, on the one hand, of course, their priority is to, you know, help the children, to help the children learn, and they all, of course, want healthy children. But I think that our schools are under so much scrutiny from so many different places that the feeling that you have yet another person coming in and evaluating them and possibly saying what they're doing wrong, um, I think researchers need to be really sensitive to that and try to form those relationships so that they can develop trust and really know that we're all on the same team and we're all really just looking for a way to make the school a healthier place for also, children. Also to um, be able to give them back research that helps them in their work. I think that's a really good point. I know um, sometimes school systems feel like the researchers kind of swoop in and do their study and then take off and publish it and never never come back again to say what the findings were. So I do think that's a really important point that when you're doing research in the schools, it has to be a partnership and they have to sort of see what they're getting out of it. And and behind the work that we've done, this has so much policy implications for West Virginia. Um, if, If you're able to show that a more fit child performs better in school, then suddenly you have physical education that that is a much more important aspect of the the student's life. So if you were to, you know, write the policy for West Virginia on the role of physical education, what would your goal be there? Um, Unfortunately, I come from an age where phys ed was, you know, the jumping jacks and the sit-ups and things that I personally did not like. Um, but I loved recess. I loved being able to get turned out uh, for us back when I went to grade school it was three times a day. There was a morning recess, an afternoon recess, and a ha- half an hour at lunch. And of course that drags out the school day and there's a lot of barriers to doing that. But to be able to give those children breaks of some sort, whether it's even just getting up in class and bouncing around for a little bit, um, you know, you, you see so many more problems with ADHD and, 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 and things like that, that I don't think we're as big of a problem back when I was a kid, and I think it was because kids were able to get outside and just run around until they were tired. I think that that's a really interesting perspective to look back and see how much things have changed, because I know now um, in my children's school, I think they have 15 minutes of recess a day, which is such a small fraction of, it sounds like, the amount of time that kids used to have to run around. Now, that doesn't uh, take anything away from phys ed. Um, I think that in the model that we have right now, phys ed is going to have to take some sort of central role in making the kids fitter and teaching them how to be fitter. And, you know, I don't know of any phys ed program anymore that does jumping jacks and sit-ups like that. They do things that are are fun, like Dance Dance Revolution or just marching around to music. Um, there, There are so many innovative ways to do phys ed. I think it is really exciting to see how the physical education field has really progressed and is trying to make gym something that kids find is fun and also to teach them skills that they can really take out and have for the rest of their lives. Um, You know, I think sometimes about, you know, learning how to play volleyball or, you know, certain sports that I never again played after leaving school, but learning how to run is something that you can then continue for the rest of your life. So can you tell me some more about the Fitnessgram assessment tool that you use in West Virginia? Sure. Um, We've alluded to some of this already. Uh, The Fitnessgram actually looks at six different aspects. It looks at aerobic fitness. It looks at uh, like a a trunk strength, which has to do with sit-ups, upper body strength, which is like a a push-up or chin-up type um, strength, flexibility, 
there's something on there called a trunk lift, and frankly, I don't, I'm not really even sure what that's supposed to do. And you'll also see why I don't think that it's as important a measurement. And the last thing is 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 body composition. Now, because in our data set we already had BMI, that last test was dropped. So we had f those five tests. Um, in in the what the work that we were talking about just before. Um, when we looked at fitness, we looked at how many of those tests they were able to pass, and that was really our fitness variable. But that makes the assumption that, that passing two tests is twice as good as passing one, and passing four tests is twice as good as passing two. And you have to ask yourself, is this true? Or is there, um, is there one of those fitness tests that is a better predictor of academic performance? So we started looking into that and um, did some analyses, and, and interestingly, Aerobic fitness across the board for all four of those achievement tests was an important variable. Well, that seems like a really important finding because then it really emphasizes that it's the aerobic fitness where we should be putting our emphasis as opposed to some of these other areas. Now, um, a second variable, which is the, the, that trunk strength, the, the um, uh, ability to do sit-ups, um, that was also important for social studies and for um, language arts. So there may be other mechanisms that are involved there, but, but universally across the board it was aerobic fitness, and it was only those two variables, aerobic fitness and that, that, that uh, trunk strength, that um, turned out to be the, the important predictors. If you looked at things univariately, um, all f aerobic fitness, um, the, the curl up, that, that uh, sit up portion, the upper body strength and flexibility, um, there's significant differences between how the children performed uh, academically, whether if they were in the healthy zone for those tests or not in the healthy zone. The only one that, that didn't seem to have any impact was that, that um, trunk lift, that last one that I was talking about. So it seems like your research will really help future researchers narrow in on what seemed to be the most important yep. when you, when you look at When you look variables. at them all together, aerobic fitness was the most important variable. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, for people who are interested in learning more about the work we do at the Rudd Center, you can visit our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org. Richard Whitberg is director of the Mid-Ohio Valley Health Department, and Marlene Schwartz is deputy director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. For more information about the Rudd Center and the field of obesity and food policy, please log on to www.yaleruddcenter.org.